Well, in this Holy Week, we've been reflecting on our holy lives. Or another way of putting it, we've been reflecting on how the cross, how Christ's death on that first Good Friday sanctifies us and makes us holy. So let me pray for us this morning. Please do just this, our Heavenly Father. Make us holy for the sake of your crucified Son. Give us now the energy and the concentration we need to receive your words that they might take deep root in our lives for his sake. Amen. I once was invited to meet the German Chancellor, Helmut Kohl. He was visiting Sydney and I got an invitation to join him at a cocktail party. So I figured that there'd be me and about five other people. I prepared my questions, very elegant, eloquent questions about the future of the European Union and Germany's place in it. Uh, some of his particular policies that I'd been thinking about. But was quite disappointed then when I arrived at the Sydney Hilton in the ballroom and discovered that there are about a thousand of us hobnobbing with the German Chancellor. My privileged access looked a bit lame, though he did come in through the service door at the back where I happened to be standing. And so as the door opened and he came in, I was the first person he saw. So he nodded very graciously towards me and I nodded very graciously back and had my moment hobnobbing with power. <laughs> this kind of privileged access is something that we are prepared to purchase. Either we buy time with a celebrity after the concert or we buy time with politicians so that they have our voice in their head. In pastoral ministry, we often get privileged access, not to a person's political opinions, but to their very soul, how they're thinking about their lives before the Lord. In fact, one of the greatest blessings of pastoral ministry is hearing someone's soul being poured out in joy or in grief. Well, in John 17, we have privileged access to a prayer of the Lord Jesus, a prayer that he prayed for himself as he faces his imminent death, and a prayer he prays for those 12 in the room, and a prayer he prays for us today. And if you're listening carefully, if you lean in and Attend to his words. This is what you'll hear the Lord Jesus say this morning. In this prayer, he says, Be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. The hour of crisis has arrived. Jesus is about to be taken before the high priest and Pilate to face a kangaroo court. Judas betrays him, Peter denies him, he's about to face his last hour. But 
from the divine perspective we read in 17 verse 1 we discover this isn't actually an hour of crisis so much as it's the hour of glory the hour of glory that the lord jesus has been speaking about in john's gospel is finally arrived and he prays father the hour has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you in this crisis moment in this glorious moment the layers of history appealed back and we see what the whole universe is about that the father glorifies the son and the son glorifies the father this is the meaning of history the meaning of history is not the greatest pleasure for the greatest number the meaning of history is not making the world safe for democracy the meaning of history is the father glorifying the son that the son might glorify the father the meaning of this world is not found in this world and of course the storyline of the bible begins with creation we see human sin god through various strategies ultimately the lord jesus redeems his people the world will come to an end that's the storyline of the Bible, but deeper still, the storyline of the Bible is the Father wanting to exalt the Son and the Son wanting to exalt the Father. That's the real storyline of history. And for the Father to glorify the Son, the Son to glorify the Father, we work out that the church plays a pivotal role. Look at verses 2 to 4. For you, Father, granted him, that is the Son, authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. The Son has given authority over the world from the Father, and from that authority the Father gives to the Son those who are elect. Now this is eternal life, that they, the elect, might know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, that the church might know the Father and the Son. And indeed, Jesus says in verse 4, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. The Son in turn will glorify the Father by offering his life for the forgiveness of his people. So now, Father, he prays in verse 5, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is committing himself afresh to going to the cross. Yes, of course, he's been making steady progress towards that hour, but now he still has to make that last commitment to go the whole way glorify me in your presence father with the glory i had with you before the world began or as the writer of the hebrews says who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame can you see how the church is right in the middle of god's plans for the universe the father gives the church the son the son glorifies the father by dying for the church the holy elect the church is not just an instrument that does evangelism 
until we find a better way of doing evangelism. Now, the church is actually at the center of the why this universe was created. There will be a church even when we're not doing evangelism. Friends, don't mock the church. Even if only 10 old ladies are sitting there, do not mock the church. It stands at the center of God's plans as the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. So Jesus recommits himself to this glorious act, offering himself to death on a cross but then immediately prays for those who are being left behind. He's facing his crisis moment, and in his crisis, he prays for us. In verses 6 to 8, more description is given of how the church belongs in the very heart of the life of God. For the church has received God's words and Christ has revealed God's character, God's name. Christ has been like a prophet teaching God's words, speaking God's words. The life of God has been manifest, has come, has been sent, has been known. But in verse 9, notice please, Jesus says, I pray for them, the church, I am not praying for the world. It's quite an extraordinary prayer and one I've struggled to understand in the last few months. Jesus does not pray that the world would be transformed. He does not pray that the world will be made new. He does not pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He prays for his people that they be protected and survive. Verse 9, I pray for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, Father, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I won't remain in the world any longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and I kept them safe by that name you gave me. None's been lost except, of course, the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's praying for their protection. He's praying for their joy, despite some kinds of hatred and persecution. He prays not that they'd give up being in the world, but rather that they would learn to be different from the world. In fact, the heart of this prayer, verses 17, 18 and 19, is a prayer for the church's 
holiness. Sanctify them by the truth. Consecrate them by the truth. Make them holy by the truth. Set them aside by the truth. May there be a clear difference between those who are mine and those who are not. Sanctify them by the truth. Or verse 19, Jesus says, For them, or on their behalf, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. If Christ is going to the cross to be sanctified, to be set aside, to become a priest, a high priest even on our behalf, to be a victim, to be like the sacrificial lamb taking away the sins of the world. If Christ is to be different and sanctified, so are we. Just as the refrain occurs throughout the scriptural story, be holy as I am holy. Leviticus 11.44 1 Peter 1.16 Be holy as I am holy. Or Jesus in Matthew 5.48 Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And as this holy people, in verse 18, we learn that we're going to be sent into the world as Jesus was sent into the world, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice for the sake of the Father and the Son. Notice that he's not praying that the disciples would be relevant. He's not praying that the disciples would be influential. He's not praying that the disciples would be strategic. He's not praying for their church planting strategies or their discipleship models or their big L leadership skills. He's praying for their character. He's praying for their holiness. The chief skill we need to do evangelism is to pursue holy lives. Christ is not sanctifying himself to provide a model of self-help or a lesson in non-resistance or to make us happy, but to make us holy. Sometimes we have to learn to feel that we're a bit different and accept that that's good. Americans came to Australia in the Second World War stationed here, many of them in Melbourne, North Queensland, for the Pacific War. These are some instructions that were given to American servicemen about living in Australia in 1942. Or at least this is a reflection on their life here. It's from the Instructions for American Servicemen in Australia book, 1942. This one soldier says, we knew nothing about this place. It was like from another world. Houses on stumps with red roofs. Cable cars in the middle of the road. The Aussies called them trams. Some girls were in town. They looked pretty, dressed well, kind of classy. 
They giggled when he said something to them. They were sort of shy, but they called out, G'day, Yank, and waved. The Aussie money was something else. Instead of dollars and cents, they had pounds, shillings, pence, and things. They talked about quids and bobs. No one could figure it out. What we used to do was buy something and put our hand in our pocket, bring out the change and say to the shopkeeper, take what you want. <laughs> Sometimes we think things are familiar. Actually, we've got to get used to being strangers, even in a place that seems like it's our home. Not that, we're, not that we should develop a victim mentality, we're different and therefore everyone's against us, though we might face some kinds of opposition. No, we learn to be different because we want to honour the Lord Christ who sanctified himself in his death. Friends, we're not very good in Melbourne in training people in holiness. And it's quite surprising this week in the course of these sermons how many people have said to me, I never hear sermons like that in my church. I'm assuming that's a good thing, by the way. <laughs> Do our youth groups teach holiness? Do adults in the presence of their children talk about personal holiness? Do we have words that can commend and describe our aspirations for holiness? Do we think that holiness is actually, in the end, something attractive? Whereas the word might sound to many as dull and entirely last century. My friends, we need to hear this message, which Jesus prayed on that first Maundy Thursday, this prayer for the holiness of the church. The church which stands in the centre of God's cosmic plans. We need to be an attractive and visible alternative society. Jesus in the last section of the prayer from verse 20 forward, assumes that the disciples will be building their lives on the apostles' teaching. He assumes that we will be one as he, the Son, is one with the Father. And he's assuming that our oneness will be visible. There'll be an external expression because when we're one, the world will see, he argues, that the Father and the Son are one. And in this oneness, he wants us to love each other. It's extraordinary. He does not pray that we'd love the world. It's almost offensive. He prays that our love for each other would be seen by the world and that others would come to know the love the Father has for the Son, the love that the Son has for the Father. We need to learn again in the church how to love each other. 
Listen to these words from Henri Nguyen, who led a community for those who were disabled in Canada and elsewhere. In the book, In the Name of Jesus, he says, one of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. We keep hearing from others as well as saying to ourselves that having power, provided it's of course used in the service of God and fellow human beings, is a good thing. But with this rationalisation, crusades took place, inquisitions were organised, Indians were enslaved, positions of great influence were desired, Episcopal palaces, splendid cathedrals, opulent seminaries were built, and much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? And this is the rub. Maybe it's that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. It's easier to control people than to love people. It's easier to own life than to love life. A friend of mine was most taken, before he was a Christian, of how Christians gave money to other Christians to support labour, Christian work, but also beyond that for those who are in need in the fellowship. We forget that those small acts of love can be massively helpful in those around us who are watching on. So let's make sure in our Ridley Open days, in just a few weeks' time, that the quality of relationships we share here tell others that we have met the Lord. So on this Maundy Thursday, I call on you to commit yourself again to lead a holy life. I call on us to commit ourselves again to be God's holy church. We are the church and we're not the world. We are the holy church that others might come to believe. And on this Good Friday, we're reminded that Christ died to make us a holy nation and a kingdom of priests that we might pass on the words of life that we ourselves have heard. And on this Easter Sunday, let's remember that the penalty and power of sin have been defeated and that Christ was raised from the dead to new life, to be the Son of God, according to the spirit of holiness. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this week, this is what we've learned, that holiness is being cleansed by God that holiness is being crucified with Christ and today that holiness is being consecrated to the Lord. 
So let's end our time of thinking about holiness by saying the Lord's Prayer on page 173, which in so many ways is a distillation of Jesus' prayer on the night he was betrayed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. <laughs>